Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. That's Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. take the stand. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Is this on? It's not on? It is on? Okay. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's good to see you, and I just wanted to welcome uh, our very precious youth group to our service today. Uh, could we just take time? I don't know if we said that to each other, but if you're sitting next to, if you're a youth group sitting next to an EM member or an EM member sitting next to a youth group member, can we just take the next few seconds to say hi? Just say hi and say welcome. It's good to see you. Today is the Lord's day. Things of that nature. Very good. Awesome. I'm just trying to get situated here because, well, now it's too ringy technology. Um, I'm supposed to get an alarm when we're supposed to go down, but um, um, just in case you're wondering, I was told that, oops, I was told that um, an elder from the presbytery would come and give us further instructions once the time is ready. And so, yeah, that's it. 
All right, here we are. So in our EM, we have been going through a sermon series on Genesis. And we are now up to the next or the new generation after Abraham and Isaac. And so we are going to study this part um, in verse 25, in chapter 25, which Amy read. And I want to go through three aspects really quickly with you. And I think we have enough time, so I'm very happy uh, to do this. And that is, I want to go through three aspects. First is the textual aspect, the traditional aspect, and the social aspect. And so the three aspects are the text, the tradition, and the social. Um, hopefully I can do it, um, just weave it in really nicely so I don't have to say this is textual or this is traditional or this is social. And I'll tr try to weave it in nicely. But here in this very well-known passage, uh, we're, we are told about Abraham's son Isaac, who married Rebekah. She couldn't have a baby, so she inquired of the Lord and prayed. And when she prayed, when Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, uh, the Lord granted um, her her prayer, and then she was able to have babies, twins, just like Pastor Kay. And so once this was happening, she, they didn't have a sonogram or didn't have any kind of technology back then. There was a struggle inside the womb. She's like, what's going on? And then she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so this is what the Lord tells Rebekah. Uh, Isaac knows, of course, and then we see that when they are born, um, I, uh, Esau comes out first, and uh, Jacob comes out grabbing Esau's heel. And so a lot of people, people say it's because Jacob grabbed the heel of Esau. He's like this deceiver, or he's a tricky man. Jacob, you tricky man. Uh, and, but I don't believe that is the case uh, in, in its entirety. Uh, I do believe that there is an element to craftiness and wittiness to Jacob and the name, uh, the Hebrew word used around it, but it also means uh, the but, behind. So Jacob, and if you think about it, think about it. Jacob is the one that came after Esau, so he's behind. So in an army, the group that stays behind would use this Hebrew word, Yekubah, or Jacob, Right? And so this is also given to Jacob. Think about it. Keep it in your mind. Jacob is called the last, behind, the butt, you know, almost like a joke. And so when this is done, uh, we are told, and most Bibles have these separated, the birth of Esau and Jacob, and then Esau selling his birthright, but I don't think it should be separated. They are together for a reason. And in verse 28, uh, we are told that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. In verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. And we see here favoritism being played out, right? And if you're in a family, you're a sibling, or you have children, this really rings true. There is favoritism. 
uh, I am the favorite. It's just, just no doubt about it. Ask my, no, I'm just kidding. Don't ask my sister. Um, right now, my sister is definitely the favorite. If I look at my mom's phone, there's only pictures of my nephew. No, I'm gone. I'm not even in my mom's mind anymore. A nephew is all over the place. I mean, anytime I flip through something else, boom, there he is. But in this situation here, we see that there is also some kind of favoritism taking place. And here it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of this game. There is another um, translation, a Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. And I was wondering if everybody knew about it. I'm just curious. Who knows what the Septuagint is? Can you raise your hand? Oh, my goodness. A good five people. All right. So I won't explain it. You can look it up. The Septuagint, it's from the Latin word Septuaginta, which just means 70. But 70 scholars got together, and they translated the Hebrew Bible, um, the Torah, the first five books, into Greek, Koine Greek, so that the Greek... Jews could read the Bible. In fact, the Septuagint is the Bible that Jesus read. Uh, and so the Septuagint also has it written this way. Isaac loved Esau because his game was food for him. And all the wording sounds similar or the same, but there is a lot of insight into this. We read Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, which should, be, should come up to... Um, you know, it should bring up some alarm. But Septuagint also has a written, which really highlights it too, is Isaac loved Esau because his game was food for him. This gives us insight to why Isaac loved Esau so much. The totality of how much Isaac loved Esau's game is shown here, and the text shows us that Esau's game was so much Loved by Isaac. It was like his staple food. Imagine this. You love this kind of food. Um, not McDonald's. I, I heard that millennials don't like McDonald's. They like Chipotle. But imagine this. You love Chipotle with all your heart. You love it. You could eat it three meals a day. You just love it. But only one Chipotle is open. No more other Chipotle. The chains are all gone. And only one person can give you Chipotle. How much would you love that person? But it's the same with Isaac. Isaac loved game, meat from game, and only one person would bring him this food, which he loved. And this is going to play out later next week in the EM when I talk about Isaac's love for game and how he wants to bless Esau. But he's like, go hunting first and bring me something I really love. But it shows because he loved food so much, he loved this, the, the game and the meat that they brought him so much that, Esau, you're my boy. I love you. You're my favorite. And then afterwards it says, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, it doesn't say why. It just says Rebecca loved Jacob. And then we are in this scenario the selling of the birthright. Traditionally, when a vow is made, food and livestock are involved. Every single vow that we looked at in Genesis, there was always food or livestock when you made a covenant or vow. In fact, all the major events in Genesis and perhaps 
all of the Old Testament, even leading into the New Testament, food was involved in the ceremony. In earlier chapters, Abraham and Abimelech made a vow together. Livestock was involved. Jacob and Laban make a, make a vow in later chapters. Guess what? Food is involved. And we'll see later when Isaac wants to bless Esau, he asked Esau to hunt game so he could have a meal before the ceremony. Food was an incredibly important part of the life for people back then. And we take food for kind of granted today. You walk in the mall today and you have an overabundance of choices and you just, you're just like, I don't know what I want. There's just so many things to choose from. But back in Jacob's time, it was different. Food wasn't so readily available but food had a special place in ceremonies. And Jacob used this opportunity to make a vow and have Esau sell him the birthrights. So all the necessary elements for a vow to be legitimate were present, and Jacob presses Esau to make the vow right then and there. And some people can say, this was trickery, this was deceit where Jacob was a trickster and duped Esau into giving him the birthrights when Esau was in a vulnerable state. But if you continue to look and study this passage, I believe that that is not the case at all. In the end of this passage, it says Esau despised his birthright. And Esau clearly did not take being firstborn seriously. You know, being firstborn back then came not only the blessings, but what came with being firstborn. And we still see it, maybe not so much in the American culture, but if there's Korean culture in us, we still see it. If you're the firstborn, you got to take care of your parents. There are responsibilities and not just rewards, but there are uh, certain responsibilities that come with being the firstborn. These rights and responsibilities Esau didn't care for. In fact, it says when it came down to it, he despised it. The last line really shows Esau's character and the nature of what that he thought, not just about the birthright, but he thought about his family. Instead of seeing it as an honor to be the firstborn, he lost it to Jacob in a fleeting moment of short-sightedness, and he looked down on the traditions and responsibilities. There is a hierarchical type of social structure in the passage, and it's interesting is there's no equality among brothers, right? Even though they're twins, there's definitely a sense of someone will always be serving the other. The way Jacob gets his birthright from his brother is very intriguing though. Instead of battling or fighting because Jacob probably knew he couldn't win, he outwits him when Esau is under duress. And that's why there is an insertion by the narrator called, and that's what the narrator says, therefore he was called Edom. He is clearly showing bias towards Esau's action. What Esau did was incredibly foolish and many generations will now live under the name Edomite. Jacob has gotten the upper hand in the social setting, 
and through trade, and now God's declaration really comes to pass where the elder does serve the younger. Edom, which meant red, is a new marker for Esau. When Esau was first born, we read that he was both red and hairy, but they, they decided to name him after what? His hairiness. But when, that's what Esau means. But when Esau decides to sell his birthright for a pot of red stew, his legacy and descendants are forever reminded of his folly through being called the Edomites. Notice he is not, the, his descendants are not called the Esauites. They're called the Edomites. But the trade really shows who Esau is. Esau saw something of that's of equal worth to him. When he saw the red stew for his birthrights, all the inheritance, all the responsibilities, all the honor that came with being firstborn, it didn't mean as much as a bowl of stew. Jacob, knowing this, offered this trade to Esau. Jacob placed a higher value on the birthright. Maybe it was something always valued by Jacob growing up because he was grasping at Esau's heel, even from birth. But either way, Jacob knew the true worth of the birthright and challenged Esau and purchased it from him. I guess now that we have this in place, that's the question. How do we apply it? And some people might say, how do you apply all this now? I guess a simple way could be, don't sell your birthright. Don't exchange the eternal for the temporal. The lasting effects are actually eternal. Don't sell your birthrights. Don't sell yourself short. Don't exchange what you've been given for eternity for something temporary because the lasting effects are not just for you but for everyone around you. I guess that could be the lesson. But here's the thing. We have. We have sold our birthrights. We have exchanged the eternal for the temporal. We've lowered our gaze and become entranced with the lentil soups that the world offers us. When there is a heavenly banquet that awaits us, how easily are we tempted of the things of this world and how far have we fallen? I would argue that we have sold our birthrights for far less Far less, at least lentil soup has some nutritional value. But we've sold our birthrights for far less. I want to share a little story that I've heard. And I brought this to kind of illustrate that point. There was a pastor named George Thomas. He was a pastor of a, a small New England town. Um, one, one time, he was telling the story. He was walking through town, and he saw a little boy coming toward him, swinging his birdcage. And at the bottom of the cage were three little birds. They were wild birds that he caught 
but they were shivering with cold and fright. And the pastor stopped the little boy and said, what have you got there, son? Just some old birds. What are you going to do with them? I'm going to take them home and have fun with them. I'm going to tease them, pull out their feathers. I'm going to make them fight. I'm going to have a real good time. And the pastor answered, but you'll get tired of those birds sooner or later. What will you do? Oh, I got some cats. They like birds. I'll take them to them. And the pastor was silent for a moment. How much do you want for those birds, son? And he goes, huh? You don't want these birds, sir. They're just old field birds. They're plain birds. They're not even singing birds. They're not even pretty. And the pastor looked at him and said, how much? And the boy started to size up the pastor because he looked pretty crazy. And he said, $10? And the pastor reached in his pocket, took out a $10 bill, and he placed it in the boy's hand. And as soon as he did, as a, in a flash, the boy was gone. The pastor picked up the cage, gently carried it to the end of the alley where the tree was, and there was a grassy spot. Setting down the cage, he opened the door, and by softly tapping on the bars, persuaded the birds out, setting them free. One day, Satan and God were also having a conversation. Satan had just come from the Garden of Eden, and he was boasting, and he was gloating. Yes, sir, I got me a whole world full of people down here. Set me a trap. Use bait, and they couldn't resist. Cut them all. And then Jesus said, what are you going to do with them? Satan replied, oh, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to teach them how to marry and divorce each other, how to hate and abuse each other, how to smoke, drink, and curse. I'm going to teach them how to invent guns and bombs so they can kill each other. I'm going to have a lot of fun. And what will you do when you get done with them, Jesus asked. Oh, I'll kill him. Satan glared proudly. How much do you want for him? Oh, you don't want these people. They're no good. Well, you'll take them, and they'll just hate you. They'll spit on you. They'll curse you, and they'll kill you. You don't want these people. And Jesus looked again and said, how much? And Satan looked at Jesus and sneered. All your tears, your blood, and your life. And Jesus said, done. And he paid the price. What we lost, Jesus gained through the death and resurrection. In Revelations 1.5 it says, And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, Colossians 1.18, it says, He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and all the things he may have preeminence. Jesus takes back the birthrights we sold for so cheap. 
But in Hebrews 12, 23, it says this. And when the writer describes the church, he uses this curious phrase. He says, the people of God are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Imagine that. The firstborn, the birthrights have been not only taken by Jesus, but given to us by Jesus. You know, when you're in, in heaven, you're all firstborn. Well, how's that even possible? But it is. In the family of God, Jesus clothes you in his righteousness. When God sees you, he loves you as he loves Jesus. Every Christian is meant to feel he or she is part of the family. And the Father loves that family member the best. Each of us in Christ, we come to feel as if we were firstborn, cherished, esteemed, and blessed. You can say, this is all good. I like your sentimental story. But you know what the reality is? I keep on lowering my gaze. The reality is I look at even the church and I'm so disappointed. I'm sad. Look at this, this drama that's going on. How can we stop lowering our gaze to the things of this world? And I want to say to you here this morning, there is only one way. It's turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We spend our lives looking at our own perfections, looking at others' imperfections. But because of Jesus, we have been given another way. We look not to our imperfections, but we look to his perfection. That's why we gather here. Every Sunday, we are looking to Jesus' perfect ways, and we give worship to him. That's what church is about. It's not about ripping each other down. Look at you, not living that holy life. Look at you, immature. Look at you, so dumb. It's not about that. But when we gather, we look to his perfection. That's why the new generation is us. We are called to be a new generation, not of hopelessness, but of hope. Where has that navel-gazing got us? Only hopelessness. When you continue to look at others, you only get hopeless more and more. But we are called to be the new generation of hope, not death. But life, and ultimately not defeat, but victory. Because of Jesus, we don't have to sell ourselves short any longer. No matter what the circumstances are, we have eternal worth 
in Jesus. Each and every single one of us who have called to Jesus, God picks them up, and you have been given eternal worth. That's how we can stop selling ourselves short. Do you realize how precious you are? That Jesus would say and look upon us and say, done, I'll take it. But he did. And he loves us. That to me is amazing. I think he deserves all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Pilgrim Church. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to take a few moments to pray on our own. How can you stop lowering your gaze to the things of this world? There is only one way. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. At this time, as we meditate on the message that we've been given, let's pray and let's look to Jesus. When we close our eyes, let's pray that the image we have is not of the things of this world, but it'll be of Jesus. It'll be of what he did for us on the cross and how he rose again from the grave and how the grave is empty today. Let's turn our eyes on Jesus as we pray at this time. Let's pray.